Well, good morning. We're coming to a... Um, well, and great to see real people. Lovely to be together. We're coming to a very uh, sobering and deeply serious part of the Scriptures. I mean, every part of the Bible is, uh, has such a serious edge to it, but this one particularly. So I'm going to pray. The Lord helps us as we uh, work our way through it. Uh, join us as we pray. Our great God, we do ask, please, that you might bless this time, that you might cause our hearts to be open to you, uh, that our heads might be engaged, that please our wills might be ready to be shaped and changed by your word, that Lord you might uh, do a great work amongst us we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well one of the most important things in life is finding out what is the most important thing in life. You know what I mean? Like it, Life is so easy just to drift and get caught up in triviality and spend your life doing stuff of no account ending your days with nothing, really. It is easy just to get caught up in, in Netflix during a pandemic or whatever, triviality. And the key to that not happening is being clear, being crystal clear on what are the things that matter most, what are the truly important things. And one of the great gifts of God in the scriptures is that he gives us that clarity. We're not left in the dark. We, we can know exactly what matters most, what matters to him, what we ought to care about. And the power of the scriptures is, is so wonderful for us in that. But even in the scriptures, there is this sense of which many of the things that are talked about, there are some within even that that stand out and dominate and are of great importance. And the Bible does that by repetition. You know how repetition works. When you're uh, married to someone and they keep saying the same thing, you get a message by the end of that that something matters to them. They might not even be aware that it mattered so much, but repetition is a powerful clue that something's important. The garbage, the garbage, got to put the garbage out. You start to get the idea that the repetition is drawing attention to this. It's part of the way God's wired us. Um, Jesus operates in the same way. He taught on many things, but there are some issues he comes back to again and again and again. And some contexts... He focuses on the same thing repeatedly. And that's exactly what's going on in this text, which is why it comes with such weight and seriousness. We're probably on Tuesday of the very last week of Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 24. He won't do any teaching on the Wednesday. Thursday is the night before he's betrayed, where there's the Lord's Supper, the final supper. So this Tuesday is really his final teaching slot. And he is weighed down with heavy things. We've seen that in the weeks gone past where chapter 23, come back there with me in this kind of same section. He's been bringing woes against the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the uh, teachers of the law and so on. Hypocrisy. And there's a deep and serious word that he brings to bear against them. Verse 35, all um, the righteous blood that has been shed on earth will come upon you. Verse 36, truly all this will happen to this generation. Verse 37, how I've longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Here's the final words of Jesus on almost the final teaching day. And he addresses Israel, the leaders of Israel, and says, woe on you. Desolation's coming. The end. Judgment. This is weighty. He then walks out, chapter 24, we looked at this last week, and talks about the temple being destroyed, the very centre of God's presence amongst this people and on the planet. 
The disciples ask him about this. When will this happen? Verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus says, you want to know about the end of the age? You want to know about the end? When the temple's destroyed, the whole end? He says it's complex. We looked at this last week and then over an extended piece of teaching, he explains to them about how the end is one big end, but it will express itself in three parts, places. It'll first be established in the death and resurrection of Jesus. His death on the cross will be the end, the great end. But that will then be seen worked out in the temple being destroyed in AD 70. With the death of Jesus, it's the end of sacrifice, the end of priesthood, the end of works covenant. There's now no longer a need for the temple. It's finished. It's just now an empty shell. And a few years later, it shows itself to collapse. Jesus says he prophesies the end. But then there's a great end to come, the final end, when he won't come anymore in weakness. But verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He will come finally one day, verse 30, 31, in power and great glory. He came the first time in weakness, with covered in flesh, as a carpenter, as someone who was someone you could walk past and ignore. But one day he will come, he says, in glory and power, with all authority, and everyone will know. All the peoples of the earth will be brought down by it. It will be a dominant activity for the whole planet. And you can trust him in this, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. These are greatly serious things. Huge. But then he follows up with this. Verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now that raises questions for us about the relationship of the Son to the Father in the Trinity of God. We haven't got time to go there today. But here it is, he makes a bold statement that no one knows the hour, the hour of his coming. You can't know when it will happen. And for the next chapter and a half, he repeats that, that very line again and again and again and again. I count four times. He gives an illustration and repeats it. An illustration repeats it. Illustration repeats it. An illustration repeats it. You get a sense of it there. In verse 36, you can't know the hour. Verse 37, as in the days of Noah. He'll talk about how in the days of Noah, they didn't know the coming of that day. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. And then he gives an illustration about a thief. You don't know what hour the thief will come. And he lands it, he, he applies it, verse 44. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. No one knows the hour, not even the sun, as in the days of Noah. It'll come when you least expect it. When the thief comes, you don't expect it. He then does it again, verse 45. He talks about a servant who's been left in charge by a master. It'll be good, verse 46, for that servant to be doing what the master expects when the master returns. He'll be put in charge. You, you come all the way down there, though, to verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour when he's not aware, the same statement again. And again, chapter 25, he gives an illustration of 10 virgins. Don't get caught up in the language there. It really is just 10 bridesmaids. We'll look at that in a moment. But he talks about how some bridesmaids were unprepared. And then the final application of this, verse 13, keep watch because you don't know the hour or the day. 
You can't know when it's going to happen, when the Lord Jesus will return. Four illustrations that make the same point. The end of each one is you can't know. You want to know something that's important to Jesus? He repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. He drives this home. The fact that the end is coming is real. Jesus will return and he'll come with judgment, he'll come with glory and power. The earth won't just end as a Peter. It won't just kind of run out. It will be finished by God himself. He will return and the fact is you can't know the day. And that is massively important. You know, I don't think I can do this justice, but it's huge for Jesus. And if it's massive for Jesus, it's something we ought to pay the closest attention to. The end and the fact that we can't know when. Now, I'm aware this is the stuff of crackpots. The end of the world is that kind of thing where, you, you know, you see someone walking down the street with a sandwich board on, looking homeless, saying the end is near. And it's easy just to dismiss them and push them away as hundreds have made claims about the end which have never been fulfilled. But note carefully the difference here. The man who warns us of this end and the fact that you can't know when it happens, the man who warns us and warns us is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no crackpot. Even people who don't follow Christian faith recognise in the man Jesus someone of depth and seriousness and character and insight and he speaks these words with deep concerns he's a man of compassion and love just prior as i mentioned in chapter 23 he talks about jerusalem and how we'd long to gather the children together as a hen gathers her chickens and in another account of this same incident the luke tells us that he did that with tears in his eyes he is a man of great compassion and love these things aren't trivial. This isn't a game. Jesus comes back to it again and again and again and again. There is an end. That end is real. It will mean judgment. And you don't know the hour. What should you do with that? Well, my aim this morning is to show us what to do. To take us into the words of Jesus closely and see what he teaches we should do with these facts. It's massive, huge, it's weighty. And I, I plan to go through each illustration that Jesus has given and show how it adds to the picture that he's teaching. I'll do it fairly quickly. Uh, we won't get caught up on any one particularly. But before we do start that process, I want to clear up a complication. There is a complication here in this passage, not with the passage itself actually. This is, last week the passage was complicated. This week the passage isn't complicated, but we've at, people have added a complication into it. And I want to just deal with that quickly. It's about a thing called the secret rapture. Now quick, I mean there's real people in front of me, so just gonna, who has heard of the rapture, the secret rapture? Yeah, okay, most people have, some haven't. Um, and that's okay. The, uh, it's, a, it's a thing that, kind of came, was really instigated in, in about the 1800s. Before that, it hadn't ever been mentioned in church history, the secret rapture. Of course, the language of rapture is there in 1 Thessalonians 4. So the idea is present, but applied in the way it was, was new to the church. And um, the idea is this, that people have imagined that there is a first coming of Jesus where he comes in flesh 
as a man, the carpenter. There's a, there's a return of Jesus, of course, where he will still come as the man, but that return is suggested to happen in two instalments. Uh, the final great return where judgment will occur, but one before that called the secret rapture, where Jesus will come secretly, not everyone will see him, and he will take to himself Christians who are living at that time, the church, who will be raptured away to him into heaven to be with him, and taken out of a period called the great tribulation, which will last for seven years, uh, where people on earth will suffer extraordinary, horrific uh, uh, things. And then at the end of that great tribulation will be the setup of the millennial kingdom. And this is all something that you might hear, particularly in dispensational circles uh, and particularly amongst, uh, you see it particularly in the American scene. Now, that has been very popular in the past uh, and this rapture idea is uh, often tagged to chapter 24, verse 40. So look at your Bibles there, you'll see two men in the field, one is taken and the other is left. And the suggestion is that that's a reference to the rapture where one is taken and the other is left. Uh, two, verse 41, two women will be grinding in a handmill, one will be taken and the other is left. Some of you remember a very famous old musician who sang about these kinds of things. Can you remember that? Was it Larry Norman? You're all too young. Okay, there you go. But it was, uh, it was so strong back in the 80s, 90s, perhaps back in the 70s. In fact, I remember getting into a car with a friend who had a little notice on their dashboard that said... Um, Beware in case of rapture, the Christian driving the car will be taken. You'll have to grab the wheel. And uh, I mean, this is very popular. It actually, uh, I mean, no one thought, what if there are two Christians sitting in the car and we're both raptured? What happens to the car? But it, 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 in fact, this was such a serious thing in the American scene. I was told this week that uh, American uh, airlines would have a policy of not allowing two Christians to fly the plane at the same time. So you'd have to have a co-pilot who wasn't converted uh, in case one of them was raptured so it was a very serious and I don't mean to demean it by saying these things this is um, a very serious piece of thinking that many have held um, and, and my intention actually is over the next couple of weeks to put on a night we'll get a night where we just can come together those of you who are interested and we'll look at the scriptures about this issue whether the rapture is there what do we make of it uh, what do we make of the second return of Christ and the tribulation and so on the church age so some of you will be very interested in that and uh, glad to come along uh, we can have a conversation together stay tuned for more details now I want to say though that this passage chapter 24 and 25 has no mention of the rapture and verse 40 there two men being in the field one taken the other left is not about the rapture the context makes that very plain this is all about what's called the parousia the final coming so you can see in chapter 24 come back to where the whole thing starts off verse 3 uh, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the word coming in Greek, the, the Greek word behind that is the word parousia. They're asking about the parousia. Now that Greek word is used often in the New Testament and it always refers to the final great end that's public. So whether you believe in a rapture or not, a secret rapture, I believe in the rapture, but I think the rapture is... But whether you believe in that kind of prior little event, the, everyone recognises the scriptures when they talk about the parousia is talking about the final end. They're asking that question about the final end. The Lord Jesus talks again about, verse 27, the coming of the Son of Man, same Greek word, the parousia. 
He is talking about the parousia. You get it there also in verse 37. Uh, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He is talking about the parousia, the very final end. You see it also there in verse 39. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the parousia. So the two men taken is not in reference to a secret event prior to that. It's actually at the parousia. And I'll give you context on that a little bit more as we go along. And as you come into chapter 25, um, it is clear and evident, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, that's not the word parousia. It's another Greek word. But nonetheless, the, the issue is the same. When the Son of Man comes in his glory at the very end with all his angels there will be a a very great and terrible division that occurs at the very end. My point is this, chapter 24 and 25, there is no hint, no hint of another event. The only event they can see Jesus talks about as in the future is the parousia, his final return. Now we, as I say, won't go into that any more detail now. I hope to do that one night in the next few weeks. Stay tuned for details. I simply want to note this, that this passage is about the final end. And if you look there at verse 40, two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. In the context of the flood, he talks about how during the flood, that they were, when the flood, verse 39, came, it took all them away took them away to judgment or salvation. You're alive, we can talk. They were taken away for judgment or salvation in verse 39. Judgment. Verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Taken for judgment. In the context of, uh, in the context of this chapter, it's about judgment being taken for. It's not a hint to the rapture. Now, that doesn't prove there is no rapture. We'll look at the evidences for that at another time. My point is this passage is very clear. He's talking about the final end. And that truth that there is an end to come and you don't know when it is, is massive for Jesus. And it ought to be for us. Let me show you. Let me go through each of them briefly. Verse 39, first illustration. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the great return, the parousia. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, the parousia of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding, one will be taken, the other left. Taken for judgment, the other left. In exactly the same way. Now, what is the point of this passage? Remember the context. You can't know the hour. You can't know the day. What does that mean for us? Well, here's what this illustration gives you. The fact that you can't know the hour was just like in the days before the flood. They didn't know the day or hour. And it's possible, therefore, to have the signs of the end all around you, but fail to pay them the attention you ought. And instead, live as if life would just keep on going. You see, the days of the flood, the signs of the end were there to be seen. 
I mean, heck, it had been raining for 40 days and 40 nights torrentially. There'd been a man building a massive boat in his backyard miles from the beach. Like, not just one of those Halverson cruises, but we're talking football fields long. And doing it saying, there's a flood coming that will destroy the world. The signs were all there. But... They weren't so dominating, they weren't so massive in their, scape, in their scope and shape that they would grip you by the throat and demand that you see the problem. They were there, but it was possible to live a normal life in the midst of the signs and people did. It was possible to have the signs all around you of the end coming but have signs that weren't so strong and great that you couldn't ignore them. You could, and people did. And they lived life as if it was just going to keep going, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That is, thinking future, generations to come, when life was about to end, and the signs were there to say. And Jesus says, just as it was then, so it will be before the end of history. When Jesus returns, you can't know the hour or day. And the signs that will be there won't be so demanding, so utterly astonishing that they will grab you and say, pay attention. There will be signs, but you'll be able to ignore them and live life as if it will keep on going. What are the signs? Well, that was last week. Jesus, in chapter 24, the first 14 verses, gave us the signs, wars, rumours of wars, famine, natural disaster, earthquake, dare I say, pandemic. Have you noticed a strange thing, actually, in the pandemic? It, uh, have you ever wondered what it would be like to live... You, you, back in 1918, the Spanish flu and millions of people killed and so on and the devastation it wrought... Did you ever, have you ever lived your life wondering what it would have been like to live through that and how it would have impacted us? And how, well, here we are living in the once-in-a-century pandemic. How is it impacting you? You're all still living your life. You're all still getting on. I mean, you have to wear a mask at church, and that's annoying. Well, some of us do, and that's annoying. But you can still do the things that you were typically doing very much, unless you're in Melbourne, but who would want to be in Melbourne anyway? Anyway, it's, life's pretty much normal. Now, there's some country in the world where it's not so much so, but it is certainly here. Isn't that astonishing? That a once-in-a-century pandemic, with all the signs of horror around us, we can still get on and actually forget that it's there. And that's the danger. There is an end that's coming, and there are the signs of the end all around us. The tribulation, Jesus says, the distress of those days. But if you're looking for some great and overwhelming sign that guarantees the end is about to happen, you won't find it. That's Jesus' point. That sign, if you like, won't come until it's too late. Jesus is saying here, pay attention to the signs that are there. Now, the most powerful of those signs, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
God has entered into human history and done something that is solid and substantial and astonishing and real. The evidence is there for you to check. He has exploded the foundations of this present evil age so that there is now nothing holding it up. You remember last week the illustration of the building. If you haven't heard it, go back. There's nothing now holding it up. In fact, it tore the, the very heart out of the temple system, of course, so that it was just that shell that just collapsed because there was nothing left. And so with the whole planet, so with this whole age. It's only held up by the grace of God. There's nothing else holding it up. Don't settle in. Don't imagine for a moment that the earth and everything in it is rock solid. It looks like it is. Unless you've got the eyes to see the signs. Just in the days of Noah. How could this world be devastated? It's all so secure. And then the end came. And the signs of that end were there. Don't be seduced that we can still live normal lives. And surely it'd be okay. Two things exist at the same time, Jesus is saying. Signs of the end that it will come, you just don't know when, and normality. The ability to live normal lives. So that you can actually look wherever you want to look. If you want to believe in the end, it's there to be seen. If you don't want to believe in it, you can look elsewhere and see that it's not. Jesus says that is the nature of our existence at this present time in these last days. You see, there's the first one. You can't know the end because the signs won't be so dominating that they tell you the end is about to happen. It tells you it's coming, but you can still live normal lives. The second one, much more quickly, because it's a very simple illustration there, verse uh, 43, understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what night, time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let, left the house be broken into. So also you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect. It's such an obvious thing. If you know when the thief's coming, if you know the time, you can sleep and then you just wake up, set your alarm, bang, fixed. The problem comes when you know he's coming, but you don't know when. You need to keep alert. If there's a delay in the uncertainty of exactly the time, that's the challenge. Third illustration. A master, verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll be put in charge of all his possessions. But suppose this, a servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time and I don't know when he's coming back. He's staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is astonishingly serious and Jesus speaks with great seriousness. It's horrific. He will be cut to pieces if he is not found faithful to the master when the master returns. Remember too, this is Jesus speaking. He's the man of love and grace and compassion. He warns and warns 
Do not buy into the modern notion that there won't be any judgment. Jesus speaks on this reality more than any other Bible figure. Why? Because it's true. You know, it might be said Jesus is just creating fear. Yes, he is creating fear. But there's nothing wrong with fear when there's something to be afraid of. In fact, it's the compassionate and loving person who draws attention to something to be terrified of if it's real. It's the manipulative person who just uses fear as a motive when there is nothing really to be afraid of. That's not what we're talking about here. It's the parent who says to a child that if you run across the busy road, you will be killed, you will be injured, you will be maimed, you'll be hurt. Cultivating respectful fear in a child over things that are worthy of fear is a healthy thing. You know, using fear as a manipulative tool is a dreadful thing. But Jesus says there is something real to be afraid of. And love demands the warning and he gives it and he gives it. Jesus says he will come back. And when he comes back, those who are not found faithful as servants under him the master, he says in words that are almost too terrible to speak, he will cut them to pieces. Your only hope on that day is being found in Jesus. This takes us to the very heart of why Jesus comes. Why does Jesus come? He comes for the sick. He doesn't come for the righteous. He comes because we cannot do enough. He comes because we can't earn God's favour enough. We can't be good enough. Why does Jesus come? He comes to die. He comes to die on a cross to give his life as a ransom for many, for people who can't save themselves. And praise God for that. Jesus comes to give us what we cannot earn ourselves, that we might find forgiveness in him and true life. But the delay in his return, the fact that you can't know when he will return, actually provides for the true character of a person's heart to be revealed. Whether they are trusting in the Lord Jesus genuinely or whether that's a sham. You see, what emerges when you are on your own? With the servant, the wicked servant, the servant who really wasn't heartfelt for his master, when he was left on his own with a long delay, he gave himself up to what his heart was really about. The Lord Jesus is delaying his return so that there might be opportunity for more people to come and find life in him. But in that delay, what happens? Well, the condition of your heart towards Jesus will be revealed. What emerges when you're cut off from regular church attendance? When you can't go to church, is there a sense of relief that I can now do what I've always wanted to do? Is there a sense of, I can let looser now? Is it possible that what's emerging is actually a heart that hasn't been captured by the Lord Jesus? That doesn't really want to have him as your Lord and Saviour? What emerges when nothing dramatic happens in your life? When your life is just very ordinary? Will you continue to stand faithfully 
serving Christ in the midst of the ordinary. You know, there's a number of places in the New Testament where uh, the Bible writers reflect on the imminent return of Jesus, the fact that he's coming soon and we don't know the hour and how life ought to be different because of that. Let me just read a couple of them to give a flavour the way the New Testament talks. James chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So the judge is standing at the door. The J Jesus is about to return. Don't grumble. Be found faithful as a servant. Don't harbour hostility and bitterness towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is near. You don't know the hour, but the end is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you might pray. Be prayerful in light of the end. And this one, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews sees the fact that the Lord Jesus hasn't come back yet, but he is coming back. The day is getting closer and he will return one day. He sees that truth as the driver to keep meeting together and encouraging one another. Spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Now I'm preaching to the converted. And I know some of you who aren't meeting together, it's because you can't. I, I get this. There's health reasons. There's genuine concerns. I appreciate these things. But the way the New Testament speaks is of the vast importance of gathering to spur one another on in light of the impending return of Christ. To be servants that have found doing faithfully what we ought to be doing while we wait. Let me give you the last illustration and suggest that it adds a unique piece. The unique piece it adds is it will be too late to change when Jesus comes. It's the illustration of the wedding and the Ten virgins, the, the bridesmaids. It's, it just, it, it's, of course, that's the state of their life. But there's a, uh, the bridegroom, verse 5, was a long time in coming. And there's a series of uh, the bridal party is waiting for him to come. And just a little bit of background for the historical context, so it's not entirely strange to you. But a wedding in the ancient world would take a long time. It'd take a week. They'd have the wedding ceremony. Then the party would go on and on. They knew how to party back in the day. And... Um, and as the bridegroom, uh, the bride returned, they would come to the house of the bridesmaids and gather them up to head out towards the beginnings of the celebration. And this might be well at night. And it was necessary to have lamps to light the way, but also as part of the festivities and so on. You couldn't be part of it without your lamp. And you have here a group of bridesmaids who have all been invited, gathered together in the house to wait for the bridegroom to come. Um, and they're excited, they're thrilled about this experience, they've got their lamps. But the foolish ones only brought enough just for the few hours they thought it would take. Others were wiser and brought much more in anticipation of a delay. And the bridegroom was delayed. Verse 5, they did fall asleep waiting, which wasn't the problem. 
But at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, because they've had the lamps running, you see, but they've now run down and they've trimmed them back up again. But the foolish ones, give us some oil. Our lamps are going out. We didn't realise it was going to be this long. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready, the bridesmaids who were ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, and here it is, later the others also come. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, says Jesus, because you don't know the day or hour. They know he's coming, but when he comes, only five have enough oil to last, to be with him. When they ask for more oil, it's denied them. Now, why and all of... The point Jesus is making is that there'll come a point where there's no second chances... The flood, there came a point when the signs become, became so dramatic, it was obvious, but it was too late. The door was shut. The thief, you sleep, you lose. The servant, the master returns and it's the end. If he is not found faithfully trusting in the master and relationship with the master, he is lost and there's no second chance. This is serious. God treats us as adults. The life you live now, you are fully accountable for. Your response to Jesus and what you do with him now will be taken seriously by Jesus. Now, I dare say you can't help but notice, I can't help but notice that one of the greatest crimes you can commit in a world today is to leave someone feeling bad. One of the worst things you can do in our society is to act in such a way that someone feels bad, offend them, they feel bad, leave them out, they feel bad. Now there's a great sensitivity around that's wonderful and admirable and beautiful that we're very sensitive to the hurts that others feel and we don't want them to feel, we don't like feeling hurt, we don't want others to feel hurt. But what's happening in our world at the moment is that we've created a culture where if you see hurt in someone, you'll do anything to make it feel better. Uh, even if they're brought hurt upon themselves, you'll do something to make them feel better. And that's created a culture where no one is held accountable. Where there's a world where to be held accountable and to feel the pain of accountability, we don't want that. And so that doesn't happen much in our day and age. Which therefore means this, no one takes choices seriously. Someone will just fix things up for me. Someone will just make it better. It will all work out in the end because my parents always made it work out and my school always made it work out and the society around always makes it work out. It'll all just be okay. No, it won't. Jesus warns and warns and warns. 
that the way you treat Jesus, the way you respond to Jesus is life and death. It's heaven and hell. It matters what you do with him. It won't just all work out in the end. He will take your behaviour response to him seriously. He'll treat you as an adult and hold us accountable. Not everyone, says Jesus, who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Think hard and deep. Do you really know this, Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus genuine? Think deeply about this. Enter through the narrow gate, says Jesus, because broad is the way that leads to destruction. Everybody's on that way. You don't just drift into genuine faith in Christ. You need to make a choice, and that choice is serious, and it has consequences for your whole life, and it will have consequences into eternity. Now, how do you ensure that you stand on that day? Well, Jesus again. He came to give his life as a ransom. So that if you find yourself terrified that you're unworthy, you are exactly the person who qualifies. Flee to Jesus. Find grace and mercy in him. He came to die for sin, to save us from our sin. He came to call the sick, not the righteous. Heed his call. Come back to him. Hand the reins of your life over to him and accept him as your Lord and your Saviour. Be found in him. Now if you've done that, and pray God you do it if you haven't, but if you've done that, don't go to sleep. Don't drift. Don't be lulled by normality. In a sense, the message here is the danger of the delay, the delay of Jesus' return in the context of a life that seems so normal, that seems like it couldn't end. That's the very point Jesus is making. You know, I, I read recently of a preacher on the Titanic. Uh, a man called John Harper was a Scottish Baptist pastor and he was travelling on the Titanic with his sister, I think, and his daughter. His wife had died. And uh, when the boat hit the iceberg, the ship's going down, he made sure they were safe on a life raft. But he stayed on the boat. And you know what he did while he was on the boat? Praise God for this man. He preached the gospel. He spent his, his hours there trying to persuade as many people as he could that they need to turn to Jesus. And when the ship went down and he was in the water, he spent his last breaths preaching the gospel to people. Isn't that wonderful? It's a great story of someone who grasped the truth of the gospel. Um, but here's the deal. It's not that big a deal, really. Because I think every one of us, if we knew that we only had six hours left to live, how would you spend it? It would be very clear, wouldn't it? I'd preach the gospel because I've got nothing to lose now. I know what the hour of my death, I know when it's all going to happen. I'd go for it. And I dare say those people in the water who were preached the gospel to by John Harper responded thinking, I know the hour of my death, I'm going to respond to Jesus. But what if they got rescued? Taken to America, where they lived the next 40 to 50 years in normality. That's the danger. That's the test. How deep your convictions are about the end and the signs of the end that they compel you, even in the midst of normality, to continue living knowing the end is coming. That's the point of Jesus' teaching. That day and hour is an unknown. Be prepared for a long wait. 
you can't know that it's just about to come if we could we'd all be living the easiest life possible we'd all know exactly what to do i dare say that's why people search for the signs because it makes it much simpler but what do you do when there's a delay what do you do when life is very normal this is a warning particularly for us i'm talking to us on the central coast we are of all people in the most danger because we are the place that I call the leisure capital of the country. We live in the most beautiful part in Australia and we see the signs least obvious of all. We are drawn in to eat and drink and enjoy and chase enjoyment and find the most enjoyable places to live and don't have to find a way to work as little as possible and to retire as soon as we can and travel as much as possible and fill your life with fun and have an adventure now it's not wrong to enjoy life this is the complexity it's not wrong to eat and drink and marry and give in marriage it's not wrong to i spent hours yesterday making the yard even nicer it's not wrong to do these things but in that sense the danger and be intentional and i think this is what it means to be watchful intentionally be conscious that all the good things you enjoy are a gift from god and remind you that he is there he is real and he's coming back intentionally fill your life with god things recognizing the god things but fill them with other god things note the things of god in your life give thanks do it in humility and add disciplines of working at godliness intentionally being faithful to the lord jesus of working at the word reading your bible regularly being in prayer regularly intentionally choosing these things exercising spiritual muscles that you don't grow flabby and found unfaithful when christ returns give yourself intentionally to serving others and sacrificing yourself for service sacrificing your finances for the sake of service aware that the end is just around the corner pursue a path of growth don't just settle in for living the lowest minimal effective dose of christianity make a determination that by the next five years time if the lord doesn't return you will have grown as a christian you will have deepened in your insight and understanding and discernment you'll have grown in your grasp of what it is to live a faithful life you'll have grown in sacrifice and service actively pursue growth and the danger is in all of this as you age and christ hasn't returned the danger is as you age you do grow softer and grayer work at it pray the lord gives you grace to grow and be strengthened in this context we don't know the hour be found faithfully serving it's massively important it's life and death how about I pray? Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help that be the case amongst us, that you might help us to be captured by the reality of the end, the fact that we don't know the hour, that we might learn the lessons of the flood and the thief and the servant and the bridesmaids, that we might recognise we live in a world where the signs are all there to be seen, but it's not so dominating because at the same time normality's there please help us see these things 
and keep clear convictions in the midst of it all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.